I'd like to share a story from my youth. My father was a manager and salesman for a chain of local shoe stores. Growing up, it seemed to me like he knew everyone in Lexington and everyone knew him. I admired his ability to go anywhere and immediately fit in and connect with the, the people there. I saw it as his gift. When I was a young teen, I asked him about this. He told me, son, always act like you're supposed to be there. He repeated it many times over the years, and the first time I heard it, I thought, this is it. This is the secret. It seemed to me like this was some magic key that opened almost any door. I took it to heart and made it part of my normal behavior without a second thought. I will admit that it has proven to be a successful strategy on many occasions. I even passed this perceived pearl of wisdom on to others over the years, thinking if they would only apply this principle, things would work out for them. I always thought of it as a, a universal. Anyone could do it. That's the thing. I never even considered that I probably was able to do this because I'm a white male. The structure of our society allows me to behave in this manner. I suspect that a young person of color would likely have a much lower rate of success with this strategy and even possibly endanger themselves in doing it. This is what systemic white supremacy does. It becomes the air you breathe without even thinking about it. I've been engaged in racial justice work for quite a few years, and yet it wasn't until just over a year ago, during one of our beloved conversations exercises, that I even considered the racial implications of my act like you belong there mantra. Peggy McIntosh, writing on white supremacy, says, I have come to see white privilege as an invisible package of unearned assets that I can count on cashing in each day, but about which I was meant to remain oblivious. White privilege is like an invisible weightless knapsack of special provisions, maps, passports, code books, visas, clothes, tools, and blank checks. This is the system our eighth principle calls for us to dismantle. This is the system that has allowed centuries of harm to continue. May we heed the call to dismantle the culture of white supremacy and work to end the harm. I held a book of poetry to read to my black son. It's African-American poetry, so children can learn their legacy of strength and creativity. The second poem is called, Another Woman Wants You For Her Child, But You Are Mine. I put a post-it note over the poem so I never have to see it again. But I don't have to see it to remember how a book of poetry for children talked about family separation because black children being taken from black mothers is part of our history too. I've devoted my life's work defending the poor as a public defender. I knew about white privilege and white supremacy culture before that hot summer day two years ago. I thought I worked to defeat it. But in that moment, I was the villain from the history books because I so closely resemble the villain of today. The past is never dead. It's not even past. Society continues to harm Black, Indigenous people of color 
moving our society, our church, and ourselves from doers of harm is a transformative process. We are all on different steps in that process. As a congregation, we voted to dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. And the very first step at ceasing those harms is understanding the history. For that, you as individuals can turn to books and documentaries and discussion groups, but the other steps cannot be done alone. If you as an individual feel that terms like white supremacy are too extreme, please understand the history. There are phenomenal resources at your fingertips, many at our own Holly bookstore or UUA website. The second step we need to do is identify the harms of today. The good news is that black indigenous people of color have really done this for white America. We need to listen with empathy. We need to understand that our actions are viewed through lenses of history. White America cannot demand and has not earned a blank slate. The beginning of empathy is to recognize that identifying harms of today and eradicate them often comes at a huge expense. So if someone does us the service of telling us of a harm, we owe it to them to listen without reacting defensively. And if we want to live in a just society, we must work to change it. Some of the harms that we inevitably cause are microaggressions. These are seemingly innocent comments that reinforce that a black indigenous person of color is other than or less than. Examples range from asking a non-white person where they are from, to clutching your purse or locking your doors when you see a non-white person on the street. The harm is reinforcing the insidious myths and messages that our society belongs to white people. I worry about my black son. I worry that his intelligence will be overlooked while his physical strength will be prioritized. I worry people will touch his hair, not realizing it's an echo from the auction block. And I worry that in 10 years, he won't be safe in his own city. And this is when I realize that I need you I need each and every one of you. I need you to go into your places of worship, of work, social circles, and families with the good news of Unitarian Universalism. We can create heaven on earth if we work together. We can live in peace and justice. We can work to heal the sick, provide for the poor, and redress the harms of yesterday. We can learn from our history. We can transform our society and ourselves. Only after this can we truly stop doing harm. In the meanwhile, we must act. We must give ourselves to this cause. It cannot be outsourced or handled by 
Committee. It cannot be borne by Black Indigenous people of color. It is a white problem and needs a white solution. We will fail. We will come up short. But doing nothing perpetuates great harm. Healing our society demands each of us participate. We are our grandmother's prayers and our grandfather's dreamings. And we must draw on that legacy to build a world they never imagined. I remember back when the sparks of national protest had ramped up once more. And justice for Breonna Taylor was on everyone's social media. My white friends reached out at that time and tried to be there for me. One friend in particular was successful. When I had had one epically bad day where fear, pain, and sadness seeped through my bones, she was able to listen to my cries without causing me any additional discomfort. I knew that I wouldn't have to explain anything to her. And I knew she was doing her part to support my people. It felt like she knew she could never truly understand what I was going through, along with all Black Indigenous people of color who were suffering. Yet she also had empathy and with that was able to help. I give this example to show how it is possible to provide a listening ear to others, especially those who have been oppressed, to find empathy and continue to work for a just world. That we must just simply truly listen to one another and put aside our guilt or pride or other feelings. When was the last time you practiced empathy? When was the last time you truly listened? And when was the last time you examined the harm that you and the people around you might have caused? How do you honor that and not push back when you are called out? Today, we are talking especially about reparations and the sensation of harm. This work must begin with listening to those who have suffered in the white supremacist world we live in. We must find empathy and be able to provide our apologies, time, money, and change our system. We must have accountability and healing to create this change. And with that, we must be willing to face conflict and be uncomfortable. We are capable of great change, my friends, but this work would not be complete if we do not talk about conflict. I bring up conflict because I understand how it is a very hard topic to talk about. Believe me, I am someone who can be seen as the peacemaker and avoids conflict. But avoiding conflict, I believe, is a sign of white supremacy. For example, people may feel the need to avoid talking about reparations because it involves listening and possible conflict 
to uncover our past. It may involve feeling the need to defend yourself and your past instead of working to repair the harm done. It may involve feeling guilty about the past. But here's the thing. While it is not our fault that Richard Allen, the owner of our church land, was a slave owner. Yes, you heard me correctly, a slave owner. And while it isn't our individual fault that the Shawnee people who lived here don't anymore, we benefit from the system. We benefit from the fact that these people worked this land or were forced off this land. We benefit from the pain of these people if we have privilege and are taking advantage of the system. The system benefits from us being silent and avoiding the conflict and uncomfortable conversations. So we must embrace conflict, those hard digs through history to find the harm that our ancestors suffered or inflicted and work to heal and end that harm. We must hold ourselves and others accountable for these hard conversations and work. The eighth principle is a way to be held accountable and renew our commitment to this anti-racist work. It is a promise to all to begin reparations and to build beloved community. The question I have for you is, what do you think we can do to keep this principle alive instead of words that just sit on paper. Let us live out this call for justice, for healing, for the end to harm, for reparations, for examining our past and working to change our future. We said yes to the eighth principle once before. We said yes to journeying towards spiritual wholeness by working to build a diverse, multicultural, beloved community by our actions that accountably dismantle racism and other oppressions in ourselves and our institutions. We must use that yes to move forward to a better world inside our church and beyond. I believe in that yes, and I believe in us.